Princess Rise for their Majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Stand by! Three cheers for Her Majesty the Queen! It's time for Royally Obsessed. I'm Roberta. I'm Rachel. And we have so much royal news coming up. But first, if you haven't already, please, please, please follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Also, send us an email, info at gallerypodcasts.com, and you can shop exclusive Royally Obsessed Podcast merch on shop.royallyobsessed.com. Rachel, what is on tap for today? Well, I think it's funny because the Royals are definitely on summer break, but we still have so much wonderful stuff for you ahead First up, we're chatting with Ed Perkins, the director of The Princess, the new HBO documentary that comes out on August 13th, which is Saturday. We've also got Prince Andrew and Prince Harry legal news, a question mark around Fergie's new digs, happy birthday to Princess Beatrice, all the love that she got on social media, and a royal rumor that's very much not confirmed that might bring Prince William to the U.S. That and so much more. Look at us. Even though they're on break, so much to discuss. Isn't it kind of lovely though that it's quiet i feel yeah, like, I feel like the roominess really, yeah and we really episode. get to dig into stuff that we wouldn't normally talk about because there's not enough time so i just love it and because it is sort of quiet our royal refreshment this week and now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail i am being a little bit snoozy and i just have my coffee with me it's a wednesday morning but rachel do you have anything fun that you're sipping a delicious glass of ice water. I apologize. Oh, hydration. <laughs> Late August hydration because, well, middle of August. It's so hot here. Like that's, I think yeah. I'm really feeling my lack of hydration, which is why I'm trying to drink as much as possible water I was, during the day. This is a side note, speaking of refreshments and drinks though, is that I was at a bachelorette this weekend and one of the things we had was a white wine spritzer, which is just so easy. It's just white wine mixed with like any sparkling water that you have and then cut up lemon and orange slices. And it was delicious because it was so hot out or in Florida. And that was the perfect beverage to sip. You just made the day. that sound so attainable and easy. I need to remember that because I'm always yeah. like, oh, I'm not totally in the mood to for wine. a full glass of wine because it makes me sleepy. But a spritzer mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. you know. Makes it a little more palatable. What were you up to this weekend, though? Quick catch up before we get in. Oh my gosh, I don't even remember the weekend. (laughs) I can tell you what I did last night. I went and saw my first the Carlisle. Okay, okay. So I went to the Carlisle Hotel for a fantastic press preview, but I just felt the Meghan and Harry energy from when they were in New York City that time. The the minute I walked in, I at Bemelman's, right? That's where they. I went in through Bemelman's specifically, and I kind of you know, scanned the room. Obviously, Harry and Meghan are not there currently. Um, But I love that bar and everything about it. And then I hopped up to a press preview. But then I also went and saw my very first Broadway show since the pandemic began. And I, Roberta knows this about me, but I used to go to theater quite frequently. Her and I saw Six the Musical, which I think was the last show I saw in the theater before the pandemic. And uh, it just, I felt so alive. It was amazing. I saw Funny Girl, which was terrific. And it was wonderful. Oh, I want to see that so bad. And that six was so good. I feel like a lot of our listeners have probably seen it at this point, but it was so good. And it was so fun to go with you. And we've also seen a lot of other things together. You used to take me to all these like off-Broadway you things as well. You used to take me. Oh my Othello, gosh. I went with just Matt. 
<laughs> just me and Matt and Brooklyn. Met, which was one of the best things. I was like, I have this ticket. I don't want to go or I can't Do you go. you want to go with my husband? And you were like, yes. And I remember you guys had like a great time. Totally I love Shakespeare. Yeah, but I'm taking best. us on a further tangent because remember the show I took you to that was like, 10 hours long and it wasn't that live good. animals on stage oh my god it was and very we were weird. so stressed about it because i was like i felt so concerned because i was like i'm literally keeping her out until like 1 a.m and i had no idea and i promised that it would be amazing but anyways I it was one of those really new york things though too where it was like this is the guy who recognized that lynn manuel miranda <laughs> yes. was a huge star and he ended up producing this guy's film who this guy and it was like oh wait this play is not like hamilton at <laughs> but Roberta is always the best sport. Like you are always like, this is wonderful. Oh, I love- and I've had the absolute best time, even though it was a total drag and it was terrible. I love live theaters. Yeah. I always am down for whatever. I want to tell you one thing, piece yes, of content please. I watched this weekend though, which was we had talked about it a while ago on the podcast and I finally got around to seeing it. It came out in March. It's Claire Foy in A Very British Scandal. How is it? I haven't watched so it yet either. So good. Like, really? I flew through it. It was amazing. I can't stop thinking about it. I've had dreams about it. It's so good. You feel so awful for this Duchess of Argyle character, which is what Claire Foy plays. Like, I can't recommend it enough. It's on Amazon Prime. It's three hours. So it's three one-hour episodes. Everyone should go watch it oh, right now. I'm going to watch it this weekend. That sounds amazing. Oh, and we want to raise a glass even though we don't have anything fun. But two, like, congrats to us, I guess. It's kind of weird <laughs> and not humble. Let's, but we yeah, were named, out. yeah, one of the best podcasts of 2022 by Town & Country. And so... Thank you, Town and Country. That's giving so us a round of applause. <laughs> All right. Our listener email is actually listener DM today, and it's from Maureen. She writes, Royal content alert. If you don't know about Sissy, she was basically Diana before Diana. Rumor has it that she's the first person to be photographed by a paparazzi in all of history. And she was a rebel princess who fought hard against palace rules and outdated practices. I was lucky enough to see this show early on, and it's really like the crown and Bridgerton had an Austrian baby. Strongly recommend. And so we look the crown up. and Bridgerton had an Austrian Yo, baby. Like, like, is there sold. anything more perfect for us? So the trailer, it's the show is on Netflix. It's called The Empress. Here's a little listen of that trailer. No one will want a girl such as you. You have no idea of the world. I want to marry my true soulmate. Give the people some hope. Wow. Sounds that good. sounds incredible. And it comes out September 29th, so it's actually not that far off. But I was most struck, I was reading some of the early reviews, just like they like our listener mentioned, the Diana parallels. There just mm-hmm. seems to be Vogue wrote that about the wedding and how when a state carriage paraded her through Vienna during her wedding celebration, Sissy could be seen weeping by the thousands of spectators who lined the roads. She caused a further scandal at her reception when rather than giving her much-loved cousins a kiss on the hand in accordance with royal tradition, she embraced them both with a hug. Her mother-in-law was not pleased. It just kind of sounds like there's a lot of Diana in her I love but that you have to watch it to really see well and it'll and be it's our fictional. good palate <laughs> cleanser before the crown I feel like we can all enjoy this like Austrian German Bridgerton knockoff and then we'll get into the crown in November so I'm excited I'm adding it to my calendar right now yeah and keep those royal content recommendations coming it really is a thrill for us to keep mm-hmm. adding so anyways royal history and now 
This week in royal history. We're flashing back to something kind of random. It was August 14th, 1991, and Prince Charles got into a row over architecture. Feels very on brand for him. Uh, (laughs) So Charles resigned from his post as president of the patrons of the National Museums of Scotland because he didn't like the new plans for the Museum of Scotland. We know very much that Charles doesn't love modern architecture. In fact, in 1984, at a big deal event for the 150th anniversary of the Royal Institute for British Architects, he made a comment that the new extension to the National Gallery in London looked like a, quote, monstrous carbuncle on the face of an elegant and much-loved friend. Roberta, I did not know what carbuncle meant, so I Googled, and it means a severe abscess or boil. <gasps> Ew. I know, which is, it's just That's very really rude. That's mean, a, aggressive insult. comment. Yeah. I, I, what I envisioned was a black tie event. The design, because of the comment that he made a few months later, was dumped, and they didn't do it. They did something traditional. So back to Scotland Apparently, Charles's big beef was that he wanted the public to be involved. They were running a competition to design the new building. They got something like 371 entries. The six shortlisted entries were all very modern. And he really wanted something that blended into the environment, which, okay, fair. What he got was something that was just very, very modern. You can click that link where it says winner. It was Gordon Benson and Alan Forsythe's design. Um, but in this case, his re- his resignation Ooh, had zero yeah, that's, impact. That's a lot. That's yeah. a lot. <laughs> it's very it's modern. It's kind of like a castle turret, but very modern, yes. Yeah. Um, with like shades of sandstone and beige and pink in a very cubic way it's it's really something you with your architecture <laughs> i'm just wanting vocabulary. to describe it for our listeners so that they can picture but it is like yeah it's kind of an eyesore a little bit i guess yeah. i don't know it is modern though yeah you're right so i mean yeah it's very judge. modern but so in this case his resignation from this awards committee had zero impact the publicist basically the head of the campaign basically rolled their eyes and said we're not surprised anyways moving on i just love charles the architecture snob and i kind of went down the rabbit hole reading about his past with architecture. So I wanted to recommend a couple of reads for our listeners. There's a 2014 piece in The Guardian about why Charles loathes contemporary architecture and why those views are potentially problematic. He also shared 10 principles of architecture in The Architecture Review, which is another amazing read. And he a lot of it is a push for sustainability, which I'm totally on board with. But I think the problematic part is that he can't discount the reasons we've modernized, which is very important. And, you know, modern architecture is a big deal for a modern world and in particular the humans and huge amounts of population that live in it. So anyways, it was a really interesting Wait, sort of history notes- moment. Why he loathes contemporary architecture for me in like one sentence, one tweet or less. Why does he loathe it? I mean, I think it really does come down to predominantly sustainability. One of the interesting points that I can't decide my opinion on is that he feels like a lot of design should be pedestrian first, have a pedestrian Mm. first point of view. And so I think that that as a city person, I really like that idea. But I think it's almost like he doesn't love the arrival of the car was this is you know from almost 30 years ago in this piece that was published but it's just you kind of have to look about look at the reasons for uh, industrialization and Mm -hmm. things like that and what Mm -hmm. it has also brought so there's pros and cons Mm -hmm. to all of it Mm -hmm. uh and anyways it's it's a really great read I highly recommend I also was kind of 
noticing the timing of all this when he got into this kerfuffle in 1991 and left the committee was obviously just ahead of the anus horribilis here, 1992. So kind of interesting. And we need to do two honorable mentions for this week in history. First is Princess Anne's birthday, August 15th. So that's next week. And we got a new photo of Princess Anne's daughter and her grandchildren, which was those photos of Lucas are so cute. Have you seen the ones where he's petting the horse? Yes, adorable. And he's one now, right? Is that yeah, how? he's one and he's big. And there's one where he looks like he's doing a push-up and it's like, oh my gosh, this is Mike Tyndall in baby <laughs> form. Like Lucas is Mike. And then the other honorable honorable mention is that we missed last week when it was Meghan Markle's birthday on August 4th. I always forget this every year. But I think also I, you're right. I forget it too. And Queen I feel Elizabeth, the Queen Mother's birthday. I know. So it's a big deal for the Queen. And she was preoccupied. And maybe that's why she didn't give her Megan a royal shout out for her birthday. I loved this. Just one last thing about Charles, though. I saw this headline today. It said, at least we know who the Prince of Suspicious Deals is because there's just more Charles money scandals. And they already wrote the article about the Prince of Pegging and who is that. So at least we know who the Prince of Suspicious Deals is. It was a great headline. Are we ready? Do you want? Let's do it. Let's do it. Lawsuits. We're going to get into two lawsuits before, well, Prince Harry and Prince Andrew and some of their ongoing news updates before we get into our Ed Perkins interview for The Princess on HBO. We're grouping them together, but very separate. So different. I know. It's kind of size of grab bag. Yes. (laughs) Such a grab bag of news because it is a quiet week, which is nice. So Prince Andrew, the news that the settlement with Virginia Jufree was actually a lot lower than we all thought. So it was originally thought that he settled for around 12 million pounds, which would be about 14 and a half million dollars. But the son on Sunday recently reported that figure is a lot lower, like only three to five million pounds, which leaves maybe some room for a tell-all book from Virginia Jufree, which is probably the royal family's worst nightmare. Um, The source in The Sun on Sunday said, no doubt this will have influenced the conditions of the agreement that she was prepared to sign. And a lot of Roros have told us this, right? This was Mm -hmm. kind of mentioned at our brunch that we had for the Platinum Jubilee that the legal agreement seems to leave open a lot of options for Virginia to explore after the Jubilee is over. Yeah, because we had a couple lawyers at the table. I remember I was like sandwiched between them and that was really yeah. amazing. I was like, I need so your So insightful. And they, they basically decoding. called this, yeah, they basically called this prediction that she can write a, a book about her experiences. We know that she claimed Andrew had raped her three times when she was 17 and that she was sexually trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein. He's denied the accusations Andrew has emphatically, and their February agreement contained no admission of liability or apologies. And they co-wrote the statement that was released. But now we know that because it's a lot lower, it probably does leave a lot of room. And there was probably a lot of negotiating for her end of the bargain. This also is a kind of a weird tangent, but Last week, Fergie bought a five million pound home in Mayfair, which is like a smaller, more posh version of the Upper East Side, as a long term investment for her daughters, Beatrice and Eugenie. And 
everyone's up in arms. I mean, no one is happy. Yeah. The Swiss chalet owner, Isabel de Rouve is her name, had to who had to fight to get the rest of her payment for that chalet that they ended up selling is upset. I mean, where did they get these this five million pounds? It's interesting. What did you think when you saw this? I mean, it's definitely a head scratcher. It seems so strange to have had a hard time coughing up cash for one thing and have, you know, this sort of we're really struggling for that and then just shell out five mil for another home. And supposedly they're going to rent it out, which is also a head scratcher because imagine staying in like basically an elevated Airbnb owned by Fergie. Like, does she keep her extra costumes in the closet? Like, we know that she loves to play (laughs) dress up. Like, is this going to be her storage unit? Like, what's going on here? The things you would probably stumble upon. I mean the mind can only imagine. It's just going to be fascinating. Is it, you know, 18th century medieval romantic, like her book, Her Heart for a Compass? I don't know. So so the home has a small terrace, a bar, reception rooms, parking garage, and it's in Grosvenor Estates, which interestingly enough is owned by the Duke of Westminster, who happens to be Prince George's godfather and also William and Kate's friend. So the kind of speculation is that they probably didn't pay full price for this and that they got a good deal because, hey, help my aunt out. She needs a house, whatever. It is interesting, though, because there is a lot of talk about the Cambridges moving and Royal Lodge. Supposedly, Andrew and Fergie are staying at Royal Lodge for now. But if they have this other home, is the plan that the Cambridges can then, maybe they can move into this you know, Mayfair place and the Cambridges can move into Royal Lodge. Who knows? But it seems like it is going to be because they're renting it out for future, a passive way for Andrew to earn money because it, he has, it sounds like that's interesting. Struggled with a lot of money problems. Yeah. The do- they obviously like the excuse was Beatrice and Eugenie, but both daughters have their own homes. Yeah. Right. Like Eugenie is in Frogmore cottage and then splits her time in Portugal with Jack Beatrice has a home. So interestingly, and then the last little bit of news is Prince Harry's second lawsuit. He filed another one about the police protection. And this one is just that he is asking them to reconsider their position about being allowed to pay for police protection. The other part of his ongoing lawsuit is that he wants the home office to review their decision of taking away his police protection because he doesn't need it. And he argues, obviously, that he does. So I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of lawsuits. I think I saw 10 lawsuits by the Sussexes in their time. Wow. I don't know if that was in the last three years or just their whole lives. So Coming soon to a Royally Obsessed episode, a lawyer will join us (laughs) to help us decipher it all. (laughs) Good idea. Good idea. Oh, and then one thing, one other thing. I keep saying one thing, but really this is the last thing before this wonderful, wonderful interview with Ed Perkins. So – the book release of Harry's memoir, We're Thinking Holidays, right? That's what we've booked. That's what we're imagining. Based on all the conjecture. I'm anticipating even like a Christmas Day drop or something like that. So there's always other royal biographies coming out, and there's a lot to wade through. I think Angela Levin has one coming out. There's also this one, and this is really interesting because the timing is late September, which is when Harry's was originally about to come out. And it's Valentine Lowe, which was the writer at the Times who broke the bullying allegations about Meghan right before the Oprah interview. And he he talked to Amal Rajan on The Princess in the Press. He was leaked an email from Jason Nauf about the bullying allegations. He has, you know, stood by that his reporting was fair and accurate and truthful and that he talked to the workers who felt that they were being bullied and all of that. His book 
about this is coming out end of September. So just interesting little bit. Yeah, it's totally just interesting. I think we have a very exciting fall ahead. And I don't know if exciting is the right word, but there's a lot. I think we have to like, I don't know, brace ourselves. Do you know what I I mean? I know. I feel clear, a little clear the bookshelves because small amount of royal anxiety, but <laughs> yeah, clear our nightstands for all this reading because I, I think you know it comes out before the memoir, but then I do think Harry's memoir may clear the air for some of that. Who knows? It's more going to focus on him and maybe not so much the headlines, but we'll see. should we do it? Our interview with Ed Perkins. This was such a treat and just so wonderful. And like I said to Roberta, I said to his team afterward, we could have chatted with him for hours. It's so interesting. We highly recommend watching the movie, The Princess on HBO. Here's a little clip from the trailer before we get into it. The prince realizes that he's taking second place. By the way... A hollow and tormented marriage are giving the British media and its public little else to talk about. Just give me one question. She's been pushed from the word go. It's the media that's causing the problems. Leave them alone. Lady Diana. We are joined by Ed Perkins, director of The Princess, out August 13th on HBO. The film is a gripping look at Diana's life through the lens of the media and the public, using home movie clips, newsreels, raw behind-the-scenes footage to tell the tragic story of Lady Di and the shifting perception of the royal family. Rachel got to watch it way back when at Sundance, and I finally viewed the screener and were blown away. So thank you so much for joining us, Ed. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. Thanks for your kind words. Yeah, my husband was on top of it. He actually nabbed me the $15 ticket and I was <laughs> I was so thrilled to see it in January. But congrats. We're, we're so You watched thrilled. it at Sundance? Virtually. Yeah, I wasn't there, but I watched it, you know, where you could buy it. They had a really well-organized program. That's right. Yeah, no, I was really sorry not to be there in person, uh, but I'm glad that everyone was able to watch it virtually. So yeah, seems like a long time ago now. It does. <laughs> Now we're in the middle of a heat wave in New York City, but we'll dive right in. I, you know, I think, you know, first and foremost, we just wanted to ask you about the timing of the U.S. release. It's obviously just ahead of the 25th anniversary of Princess Diana's passing, which I feel and we both feel adds to the gravity and eeriness of the film, in particular, the opening bystander footage. I think I can't watch that without my breath catching in my throat. You know, how significant is the timing for you? Um, I mean, we're obviously aware of the uh, of the anniversary of Diana's death, but I don't think that was the reason we decided to make it now. I mean, the, the, the truth is that this is actually a film I've, I've wanted to make for many, many years. And Simon Chin, the producer who I work with, and I have talked about this probably for about five or six years. And I think wow. Simon initially was quite hesitant to make the film because I think quite rightly he felt, could we add anything new to this conversation? You know, we all know that this is one of the most told and retold stories probably in the last few decades. And so we only felt it was worth taking this on if we really felt we could offer something new, or I think in our case, offer a new perspective on this story. And, you know, my my strong take was that there have been a lot of documentaries made about Diana. You know, every single year, a few at least in the UK come out. And I think most of them, are sort of consciously trying to to get inside her head. You know, they're trying to be quite interior and trying to understand her psychology, trying to understand 
what made her tick, um, perhaps what happened in her childhood and, wh and whether that affected her adult life, you know, perhaps the mechanics of the breakdown of her relationship. All of that is interesting and people have been fascinated by that for decades. And yet it does involve a degree of speculation. And the part of the Diana story, the part of this puzzle that at least to me is less explored and more interesting is not what does this say about Diana, but what does Diana's story say about all of us? Mm -hmm. And that was really the key is like, can we make a film that essentially holds a mirror up to all of us and forces us to ask ourselves some really difficult questions about our relationship to Diana, but also more broadly, our relationship to celebrity and monarchy. And I think the thing that's most interesting to me is like, this story wasn't just a story that we passively watched. You know, I believe that this was a story we actively participated in, in the same way that so many people still actively participate in the royal stories. And, and, and so the question I want to ask is, you know, what was our responsibility and perhaps what was our complicity in this tragic tale? Absolutely. What Absolutely. is that? I mean, what is that complicity? What does it say about us, the audience? Because I think that is, I mean, our curiosity is such a massive part of the film. I think that's right. I mean, I think the film in a way is an, is an analysis or an excavation of the way in which we turn these stories, often royal, but not just royal, more, you know, just celebrity stories into a sort of form of entertainment in a sense for our consumption. You know, there is something about this story specifically that I think talks to us because for thousands of years, we've been telling ourselves variation of the fairy tale myth, right? And then it sort of came into being. And there was this beautiful girl who married the prince. And I think so many people were sort of swept up in that in the same way that we still are. And, and so I don't think it's any surprise that so many people are were captivated by it, um, wanted to follow it. Um, but I think, you know, so many people, you know, we want the fairy tale, but but at what cost, at whose expense? And and the film, in a sense, is trying to not assign any blame, but it is trying to talk about our own complicity and the demand that we, the people, create for paparazzi photos or certain levels of intrusion, and 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 the way in which stories like this can can, as I say, be turned into a a kind of national sitcom, a national soap opera, um, and and I think that's not an easy conversation to have, but I think it's an important conversation to have. And I also think without being prescriptive about what the, what exactly the, 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 the modern kind of reflections are, I do think there are ways to see what's been happening more recently through the lens of the Diana story. And I think there clearly are certain similarities and echoes um, that hopefully our viewers will find in our film. That's fascinating because I think a lot of people who have seen the screener have pointed out that there are a lot of similarities to you know, the modern version and Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Did you feel that those parallels stuck out to you? Do you feel like that's something that um, people should be comparing her Diana's story to? I mean, I don't, I think it's, I don't want to be prescriptive about what people take from the film. I think there are a couple of things. Harry has explicitly talked about a fear of history repeating itself. The other thing I would say is that when we started making this film, back a couple of years ago, it was around the same time that Harry and Meghan were leaving the UK and moving to the US. And at least in the, US, in the UK, what, what seemed to happen was like, the entire news cycle just stopped. Like it seemed that for days and weeks, all everyone was talking about was Harry and Meghan. 
and 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 the story like had a very polarizing impact on people you know very few people i knew were apathetic towards it you know even those who pretended to be apathetic if i just dug a little bit they they would actually reveal very strong opinions one way or the right. other mm-hmm. people seem to take sides and it reminded us of like of a lot of the footage we were watching of diana's life you know that for 16 17 years when she was on this very public stage we were all dissecting everything she did everything she wore everything she went everything she wore you know and and there was i remember this like constant debate and discourse around her and what she represented and what she was doing and who she was spending time with and part of the film is in a sense trying to kind of bring that debate that chatter back to life and and these voices sort of act almost like a a Greek chorus in our film, these dislocated voices, normal people's voices, not experts, not people with any privileged access, just normal people like like us, who had very strong opinions and felt like they had a stake in the game, felt like they had some ownership over Diana or what she represented. And so, yeah, I think I think there are interesting parallels there that I think um, without going into too much detail or being too prescriptive, I think audiences, mm-hmm. certain audiences will find. We'll the other up. interesting thing is that for modern younger audiences, they won't have lived through the Diana story because they wouldn't have been born then. And so they're coming the other way. They now know the Harry and Meghan story and then they might be uncovering the Diana story fresh. And so I think it's going to be interesting. Um, the other thing I would say that, that that I think is interesting about making this film is that there aren't twists and turns in this story that we don't already know. This isn't a film with any kind of grand revelations in a narrative sense, but, and we're also aware that like, everyone brings their own baggage to this story, you know? Like you, you'd have to have been living under a rock for the last three decades to not just by osmosis, if nothing else, like just like consumed this story. Cause we all watch the crown. We read the books, we read, watch the documentaries, you know? So we've all kind of, we all come at this with our own, um hindsight analysis and and instead of kind of fighting against that we sort of we want to we want to accept that that's part of this and so the film is is hopefully trying to say that it's giving audiences the space to look at the footage afresh it you know but also to bring their own hindsight to bear and so we're not just asking audiences to relive the story we want them hopefully to also reframe it for themselves mm-hmm. I think that's so fascinating and interesting. And it's exactly how I felt. I felt so reflective for almost eight months and seeing it, just thinking about my own role and my own perspective on these events. But since you mentioned The Crown, I did want to ask, you know, we have had a lot of fictional takes recently, The Crown and Spencer. Do retellings like that help or do they hurt when it comes to Diana's legacy and and narrative? Oh, I don't know. That's a very good question. I mean, I, I think when people are watching fictionalized accounts I think I mean I, I I accept them for what they are which are fictional fictionalized accounts I mean the truth is even with Diana's story so much of the way we understand her story is 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 because of what we were projecting onto it at the time and the narratives we were all spinning either we the public or the media um Diana didn't actually speak that much publicly throughout her entire life um and so yes I mean like everyone else or like most people I've watched all of those fictionalized accounts um but you know we i think it's important to say went in without an agenda you know this is not a film that comes with any pro monarchy or anti monarchy agenda or pro press or anti press we we've tried as we do with all our films i hope to kind of come in a balanced way and a sensitive way and try and tell the story that we find 
in front of us. And and um, obviously there are complicated and tricky parts to this story that need to be told. We hope we've told them with a lightness of touch, but they, you know, it's important to tell them. Um, but we don't come with any set agenda. So yes, over the course of making a film like this, inevitably you form a point of view. But if that point of view is anything, it's it's critical of me first and foremost, and all of us for our continued role in these kind of stories. And again, it's not about blame, but it is about just you know looking at this story and and and, and hopefully encouraging people just to have a think about about um, yeah our role in it. how a story like this and how a film like this is made because you must have had to watch I mean so many hours of footage to compile this how many hours did you have to watch and how did you go about sourcing all of that yeah it's a a really good question I mean it was a mammoth task because for 16 17 years she was one of the most filmed and photographed people on the planet um I think our archive team came back with something close to a thousand hours something like that um and you know and that was without any still photography you know our film doesn't really have stills in it was just we wanted to try to make it as immersive as possible and sit within the archive because i think the archive is the medium through which we all or many of us got to know diana or consumed this story um but yeah it was about taking that a thousand hours and and just slowly kind of chipping away at it and, and 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 kind of boiling it down to its essence i guess um you know i was very very fortunate we worked with two really extraordinary editors jinx godfrey and dan lapira and you know if the film works for anyone it really is because of what they've done because they've they've taken all these disparate camera sources and kind of woven this tapestry you know mm-hmm. that i think when it works when films like this work they sort of take you under their spell a little bit there's no narrator to kind of hold your hand. There's no one telling you how you should feel or what Diana's feeling or what the takeaway from the scene should be. You're sort of left to fill in the gaps yourself. And I, as a viewer, just, you know, personally, I like those kind of films where I'm sort of asked to do a little bit of work and I'm not having some take-home message kind of prescribed to me. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it was an enormous challenge and and um, it took, you know, a long, long time in the edit to, to try to, yeah, condense this story. I mean, the other thing it's maybe helpful to say is because we all know this story, like it took us like seven or eight months in the edit and we got to like a, a rough cut, which was like three hours long, where we were just like telling the story from A to B to C with just archive. And we kind of felt pretty proud of what we'd done. And then we watched it and then we realized like, oh, actually all we've done is tell a story that everyone already knows, you know? And so the hard work really started then, which is to kind of add in the layers and nuance and depth and try to offer up this new perspective. And that's really where this idea of kind of trying to turn the camera back onto all of us comes from, because, you know, Diana isn't around anymore to tell us how she felt. And those central to the story are not going to tell us how they felt, um, I don't think. Um, And so more interesting for me was well the one thing we can explore is how we felt and Mm -hmm. there's lots of archive of people telling us how they felt or how we all felt at the time um and so it felt interesting and hopefully novel to kind of lean into that was there one specific clip um or home movie or something that stood out to you as being the most revelatory yeah there's um there's there's 
there's some amazing footage that I found really poignant of a group of Canadian or American men who were playing cards uh, the night that was the one I stood out yeah and it was kind of amazing because like we you know we were going around the world to all these kind of big serious archive houses trying to find archive and, and we did but then one of our amazing archive um researchers on her first day on the job was just scouring youtube and came across this clip that had been on youtube for ages and it's of these guys sitting playing cards and in the background there's this rolling news coverage on the tv of of the crash and what i kind of found really poignant and powerful is like they sort of stand in for all of us to us to, to an extent because you know at the beginning of the night the news was that Diana was had kind of walked away from the crash. She hadn't been injured. And, and then the news becomes more and more somber and serious until ultimately it's announced that she's died. And you see on the faces of these men in real time, there's just like absolute shock and disbelief, you know? And I think that is how not everyone, but lots of people felt at that time, which was like, this was not supposed to happen in this way. Fairy tales don't end like this. And, and yet it did. And, and, so those men and their kind of very visceral, honest, unfiltered reaction, I think, yeah, it really captures people. And it often, so many people have come to me after seeing the film and saying, God, that moment really reminded me of where I was when I heard the news. And that's interesting to me. There's something about Diana and her story that her life somehow kind of intertwined with ours in so many ways. And this story does invite, I think, people to go back into their own past. and and feel something someone came up to me the other day saying they'd seen the film and they were really emotional watching the wedding scene and i sort of said oh that's interesting and and it wasn't to do with anything about the emotion of charles and diana getting married it was that he remembers where he was when he watched the wedding he was with his parents they were on holiday in a caravan and everyone was happy and the sun was out and it kind of like it took him back to a very specific moment in his past in his childhood and I think that's what's sort of powerful about this story and this archive-only approach is it, it does act as a bit of a time machine and it lifts you up and takes you back, yes, into Diana's life, but also back into all of our lives. And I think, I think there's something interesting and powerful there. What is your take on the Martin Bashir fallout, the idea that Diana's panorama interview, which is included in the film, should never be aired again? I mean, look, I, I think what I would say is this. I understand the sensitivity. Of course I do. Um, our film... Um, is telling Diana's story exclusively through contemporaneous archive material from the time. And it, it, it isn't going in for um, any contemporary um, commentary from today. And so as a result, you know, there are excerpts from the Panorama interview that are briefly featured in our film as a matter of the historical record. And it is part of the historical record and we felt it, it, it therefore um, sort of deserved it place, uh, its place in a film um, in the way that I've described. Well, it has been a privilege to talk to you. Like we said, we could talk to you for so much longer. I know that we are on a time crunch here, but uh, thank you for joining us and congratulations on the yeah, film. Congrats. It really meant a lot to us. And I think in a sea of so much Diana content that has, especially in the last year and a half, it really stands out and is quite remarkable in our opinion. Oh, that's so, fine. Thank you. Uh, we will encourage all of our listeners. We'll say it multi every week to watch. So thanks again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. So wonderful to get to chat with Ed and if you would like to watch his new film, it's out August 13th, The Princess. 
I think I'm going to rewatch it actually this weekend because I couldn't even take it all in. It was so much. Tissues required. Yes. Before we adjourn the Royal Pod, here are our highs and lows. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. You know it is a slow news week if my low is the absence of (laughs) something. And it was the absence of a birthday wish from the Queen to Meghan Markle. Although we did get some from Kensington Palace and Clarence House. And obviously, it's also the Queen's mother's birthday, so that's got to be bittersweet. Also, no archetypes. I just feel like there was, like, such a kind of silence from the Sussexes, and that was a little bit of a letdown. Did you see that tweet from Ellie Hall at BuzzFeed? She said a Sussex spokesperson told her that Duchess Meghan is spending her 41st birthday today celebrating with her husband, children, and close friends. No new pictures are to be released to mark the occasion. So it is kind of nice, I guess, that they're having a low-key thing, but usually every year there's like a donation or like a fundraiser. I don't know. It was just such a big deal for 40 for 40 that it feels like a little bit too quiet, but she did get, you know, that statement i guess tyler perry gave her a shout out misan harriman so it was celebrated she still I'm got sure a lot had, of love and i bet she yes. had a big quiet bash yeah. <laughs> along those lines milo is so sad i really have been <sighs> gutted by the passing of olivia newton john dame of olivia newton john and of course there's a royal connection she died at 73 this week as we all know um but she received an obe in 1979 from the queen and also was named a dame or got her damehood at the 2020 new year's honors uh she had lived in cambridge she was born there and moved to melbourne at six she also met diane I don't know. I just, I think it's just so sad. She had a 30 year battle with breast cancer. I've been listening to the Grease soundtrack all week. I just, yeah. And we saw some words from John Travolta just cast a really big shadow and loss on the week for me. 73 feels young to me too. Yeah. Like I, don't, I think my parents are nearing that. And she also just feels. really impacted so many people in my world. Like I think that, mm. you know, a lot of people just you know, our parents' generation grew up with her in particular, so. R.I.P. Olivia Newton-John. O.N.J. My high this week is Beatrice's birthday, which we did get a really fun photo slideshow from her sister, Eugenie, with some never-before-seen pics, and also a shout-out from Edo. And it's a photo. Gorgeous photos. Gorgeous of Beatrice uh, in Stockholm. This is the one from Edo. And he said, you're the world's best wife. Along with this, you're the best mother in the world. We love you so very much. Happy birthday, my darling. We've talked to you so honest in his cash. My gosh. It's so endearing and so sweet. He signed Love 8, which might be heart infinity, like love forever. Or also 8-8 is her birthday, so... Reading into that, I a love little it. Too much, I also but... just like seeing their iPhone camera skills. Like they've got some good. Oh, portrait mode! Portrait Eugenie. mode! They're nailing it. Yeah. <laughs> so my high is very much a rumor, but Prince William is potentially, according to the Daily Mail, coming to New York City early in September. It makes so much sense to me that he would make this trip because he is going to be here for Earthshot. He's probably got work to do. The assertion is that he's going to be meeting with Bloomberg, who's on the Earthshot board, might make a speech at the UN, which feels kind of strange on the heels of Harry just doing that. But either way, I mean, it makes sense as well, because he's all about sustainability and Earthshot just aligns with so much. I feel like if this happens, Roberta, we have to clear our calendar. We need to... <laughs> like, I, we can't miss this, but I do feel like it'll be super under the radar, so... 
Who knows? This is going to be so awkward when I have to tell Dave's parents I can't go on their vacation. <laughs> They're like, sorry, I need to like stake out I the Carlisle. I have Carlyle to go to the and- <laughs> UN and wait outside. <laughs> uh, I hope it happens. So I'm excited because there's been no confirmation and no chatter about we this. We are waiting. So. Yeah, get we that Google waiting. alert. We'll be there. Just a reminder before we close, please, please, please leave us a royal rating, five stars. We would love that. It would make our day on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and email us. We love hearing from you. Info at gallerypodcast.com. Till next week. God, God save, save the, the pod. pod. I mean, it kind of sings on me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.